Hey, everybody, just a quick note before we get started with today's episode. We recorded this one before the June 17th, 2015 attack on Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That mass shooting put the former colony of Rhodesia in the national spotlight in the United States. We mentioned Rhodesia in this episode almost as an aside. That was a coincidence, and we definitely would have approached it differently if we had recorded even a couple of days later. So... If you get to our brief mention of Rhodesia and wonder why we didn't include a more thorough or detailed explanation, that's why. Our focus was really on Australia as we were preparing this episode. And a full episode related to Rhodesia will be coming in the near future. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A lot of our listeners probably like the BBC drama Call the Midwife. I know I like it very much. It is, for those who are not familiar, set in the impoverished neighborhood of Poplar in London's East End in the 1950s and 60s. And it tells the story of these nuns and midwives uh, who are basically providing health care and delivering babies. Uh, in people's homes. And it's based on the memoirs of Jennifer Wirth, who was one of the midwives who did this work during this time period. So every episode of Call the Midwife tells these stories of women in their neighborhood and lots of babies and uh, and family stories. But because of when they're set, they are also peppered with horrific other happenings in the world. Um, there are stories of women who have survived workhouses and the eugenics movement, there are ones about teenage mothers who had their babies taken away from them without their consent or the chance to say goodbye. One of the most recent episodes that aired in the U.S., I was literally yelling at my television to a pregnant woman who was having extreme morning sickness, don't take that, it's thalidomide, because we know now thalidomide caused many, many children to be born without their limbs and with all kinds of other physical problems. For the most part, when like when Call the Midwife drops one of these things on the viewer, I know that story already, right? I already knew about workhouses and teenage moms who had their babies taken away and all this stuff. Uh, but there's one episode that alluded to a horror that was entirely news to me. It's the first episode of the most recent season, which is series four. It's about a family of four young children who have just been woefully neglected neglected by their mother. And the oldest one is trying to look after the siblings, but he's just a little boy. Uh, in the end, they are taken from their mother's care. The baby, who uh, was just in very horrible condition from all this neglect, was adopted by another family. Um, and then the uh, rest of the children are sent to Australia as part of the child migrants program, where, uh, according to Vanessa Redgrave's narration, they faced a life of hard labor. And then I was like, "I'm wait, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> the what program are we talking about right now? Then I basically tweeted that I just wanted to thank Call the Midwife for telling me some horrible thing from the past that I didn't know about that now I was going to have to do a podcast episode on because that's exactly what happened. We have before on the show talked about a number of government attempts to populate their various colonies throughout uh, encouraged or more accurately forced migrations before. Uh, in the fairly recent archives, we have episodes on Les Filles du Roi, who were the women sent to New France, which is now Canada, as potential wives in the hope that they would even out the gender ratio and boost population there. And we've also talked about the Lady Juliana, which was a ship of female prisoners sent on a similar mission from Britain to Australia. 
And in the U.S., uh, there were the orphan trains, which transported children, some of which were orphans, some of which were not, from densely populated cities in the east to country out west, where they would have, it was hoped, a better life. So the Fille du Roi migrated in the late 17th century. The Lady Juliana sailed in 1789. The orphan trains ran in the United States from the 1850s until 1929, although that last train only carried three children on it. In Britain, uh, child migration efforts started as early as the 1600s, when children were sent to the American colony of Virginia. It was about 100 children. But these efforts didn't really get going until the 1800s. From then until the 1920s, about 100,000 children were sent from the British Isles to Canada to live. For the most part, these Canadian children were sent through processing centers, and then they were divided by gender. Boys went to farms to do farm work, and girls went to homes to act as domestic servants. So this phase of child migration from Britain did have some things in common with the orphan train movement that uh, we've had a whole episode on. Uh, people thought that the children were going to be better off in their new circumstances, that they were getting access to a better life than they would have had in an institution uh, in Britain, and that they were also learning to work in their new placements. But in reality, British children sent to Canada wound up doing manual labor for little to no money. Once in Canada, home children, as they came to be known, were usually stigmatized and they were treated as second-class citizens, regardless of whether they were working on a farm or in a home or somewhere else. So much so that many of them hid this part of their childhood when they became adults. It's estimated that a little more than 10% of Canada's population is actually descended from child migrants. Uh, I kept finding a statistic that more than half of these children had also been abused in some way, but I could not figure out how that statistic was determined. Uh, and some of the children who were sent to Canada did wind up back in orphanages and other institutions when uh, placements for them could not be found in homes and farms and other places. So in these cases, children had basically been sent from one institution to another institution, with the second one being on the other side of an entire ocean. So they basically lost the connections they'd had to friends and family and the people who were caring for them where they came from to have to start all over somewhere on the other side of the world. Many of the surviving British child migrants to Canada were tracked down in the 1980s. And by that point, the ones that were still alive were elderly, and the stories that they told were also very similar to what we talked about in the Orphan Trains episode. Many had been sent to Canada far too young to really know what was going on, and most were told that their parents had died. But many had siblings, cousins, and other family, all of whom were separated from one another. Child migration efforts from Britain to Canada ended with the Great Depression, but a new wave of migration followed, and this was to Australia and New Zealand. We're going to talk about that more after a brief word from a sponsor. So the Department of Health estimates that in the 19th and 20th centuries, 150,000 child migrants were sent from Britain to other countries. 100,000 of them, as we just talked about before the break, went to Canada the rest of them went to Australia, New Zealand, and Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. In the wake of World War II, the British Empire feared for the stability of its territory in Australia and New Zealand. Having such an expansive, largely unpopulated territory so far away from Britain, and so much closer to nations with which Britain had just been at war, seemed very threatening. 
Plus, there were some overall population worries in general. There had been a great loss of life that had come along with the war. And then there was the fact that the white colonists in Australia were basically a minority in that hemisphere. In the words of the Archbishop of Perth in 1938, quote, if we do not supply from our own stock, we are leaving ourselves all the more exposed to the menace of the teeming millions of our neighboring Asiatic races. So uh, the British government decided to send children to Australia and New Zealand. Australia also invited other European nations to participate in this scheme. And about 100 children came from Malta. But that really seems to be the extent of participation from elsewhere in Europe. About 550 British children were sent to New Zealand and placed in foster homes. Although many of those placements turned out to be temporary. They just didn't work out for one reason or another. And that whole process was not really supervised very well by local authorities or child child welfare organizations once the children were in New Zealand. Many more children were sent to Australia. The British and Australian governments took on this scheme with a collection of religious charities and other charitable organizations, including the Salvation Army, Bernardo's, the Fairbridge Society, and National Children's Homes. There were organizations affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England that also were involved in this plan. So, at least in some cases... There seems to have been a genuine desire to provide a better life for children who were living in poverty or were being neglected or mistreated by their families or were, for some other reason, living in some kind of unsafe condition. So there were definitely people involved in this who were envisioning that these children would have an idyllic life on a farm with warm weather and lots of sunshine once they got to Australia. When you look at the pictures of these children as they're leaving Britain or arriving in Australia, they often look really happy, like they're about to uh, embark on this wonderful adventure. Uh, But the reality was much different. Between the 1930s and 1967, between 7,000 and 10,000 children between the ages of 3 and 14 were moved from Britain to Australia. And they were described in the press at the time as, quote, war orphans. And newspaper coverage praised these efforts as being charitable. But even though they had generally been told that their parents had died, most of these children were not orphans. Many of them were children whose families had fallen on hard times during the war, and they had consequently put their children into care, hoping to come back for them later when they had their their finances under control. Many of them were children of unmarried women and other parents who had placed their children up for adoption and thought that their children had been adopted by families who were going to be better off uh, that way. For the children who still had living families, which was a lot of the children who were sent to Australia, this basically deportation was done without their parents' knowledge or consent. So at this point, we have children who were told they were orphans, but in fact they were not, and parents who were told their children were going to be placed with an adoptive family, but in fact they were not. And instead, these children, who were as young as three years old, were sent 12,000 miles away on a sea voyage that took up to 12 weeks, giving them very little hope of ever returning to Britain. To make things worse, once the children were in Australia, there were not families waiting to care for them. That whole plan was pretty much abandoned almost immediately as being too much trouble. They went back into institutions. So for a lot of children, even if they had started out at an institution in Britain, this meant being uprooted from a setting that was familiar where they had relationship with, relationships with staff and other children and being sent 
to the literal other side of the world once again to start over at a different institution with different staff and different surroundings and different peers living with them. Although some children who were relocated to Australia did well there, many wound up feeling rejected by Britain and never really at home in Australia. A couple of the institutions where these children were placed became notorious for abuse and neglect. In particular, Bindoon Boys Town, which is north of Perth, was literally built by the boys who were to live there. It was heavy manual labor, and they were children. As adults, many of the boys who lived there reported being physically and sexually abused. And this was by far not the only place where abuses were reported, but reports of abuse at Bindoon were widespread and extremely horrifying. So apart from the news coverage that had happened as children were being sent, which was generally favorable, this whole process fell out of view for a lot of people for a long time. We're going to talk about when and how that changed after another brief word from a sponsor. So as we just alluded to before the break, uh, after all this favorable news coverage in the post-war years, this program kind of faded away from the public consciousness in the British Empire. That started to change in 1986 when a woman known as Madeline wrote a letter to a British social worker named Margaret Humphreys. Humphreys had been running a support service called Triangle, which was for birth parents, adoptive parents, and adults who had been adopted as children. So it was for all three pieces of the adoption triangle to kind of get to know each other and have a support group and that sort of a thing. Madeline was living in Adelaide and had heard about the service from a friend who had taken a trip to Britain. And Madeline's letter said that she had been taken from a children's home where she had been living because her parents had died when she was four and sent to Australia. So when Humphreys read this letter, she thought Madeline must be mistaken or misremembering that there had to be some other explanation because the idea of a four-year-old being sent from Britain to Australia without a guardian there was just frankly unbelievable. Not long after that, though, another woman at a triangle meeting who had been adopted as a child told a story of basically remembering as an adult that she had had a brother. When she managed to track this brother down, it turned out he also had been sent to Australia. Even as she started searching for birth records and the records of Madeline's parents' deaths, Humphreys thought this must all have been some kind of misunderstanding. But after looking for birth records one day at St. Catherine's house, which is where all the birth, death, and marriage records were kept, she walked to the nearby Australian High Commission house and asked about the records of children who had been sent to Australia after World War II. And the wording of the answer that she got set off some alarm bells. Quote, the records of the children have been sent to Canberra. That made it sound like there were many. So she started to do some more investigating. She put ads in Australian newspapers asking for people who had been sent to Australia from children's homes in the 40s and 50s to write to her. And soon it became clear that there was just a vast tangle to uncover. She teamed up with Annabelle Ferriman, who traveled to Australia to do more research Annabelle Ferriman was a journalist who was going to write articles about what they discovered. While she was in Australia, Humphreys met more people who had been sent to Australia as children. And once they were in Australia, they had wound up in institutions. And all of them believed that their parents had died. They had no birth certificates. They had no other ties to their home. And many of them weren't even sure of what their own birthdays were. Eventually, Humphreys worked to establish the Child Migrants Trust to help reconnect these now-grown children with their families back in Britain. This became an actual organization, and working there became her full-time job. 
Many of the children's records were destroyed as schools closed down or charities ceased to operate. Some of these records were falsified or even lost when the children were originally sent to Australia. And one of the difficulties that arose was that once children were reconnected with their birth parents, they had trouble traveling to Britain to meet in person. With no birth certificates or other documentation, they couldn't get passports. Uh, Humphreys really worked just she worked herself to exhaustion repeatedly doing all this. She also got uh, as the allegations of abuse became more public, she got death threats and multiple death threats, threats to her family. Um, like she really continued to do this work as people were uh, showing up at her hotel rooms trying to break in because she was speaking out against uh Abuse that children had suffered at the hands of religious care institutions. The whole thing is pretty horrifying. Um, in addition to many, many trips to Australia, she also traveled to Canada and to Zimbabwe, which was during the time of the migrations known as Rhodesia, to meet with former child migrants in both of those places. And we haven't talked as much about child mi- migration to Rhodesia, but based on the accounts that she heard there, Most of the child migrants that were sent to Rhodesia were sent to school and treated as a privileged class, although they still did not know who their families were. The migration to Rhodesia seems to have been orchestrated, at least in part, to make sure that there was an ongoing white upper class in British African territory. A documentary drawing from Humphrey's work came out in 1989. It was called Lost Children of the Empire. A drama followed, which was called The Leaving of Liverpool, And as each of these aired in Australia and in Great Britain, people just came out of the woodwork in both places, trying to connect with their lost children and their lost parents. Humphreys also wrote a book, which was originally called Empty Cradles. Uh, It is now retitled as Oranges in Sunshine after the movie that was made based on it. Kevin Rudd, who was then the premier of Australia, publicly apologized for the child migration in 2009, saying, we are sorry. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused. Sorry for the physical suffering, the emotional starvation, and the cold absence of love, of tenderness, of care. Prime Minister Gordon Brown apologized for the program also in 2010. He said, to all those former child migrants and their families, we are truly sorry. They were let down. We are sorry they were allowed to be sent away at the time when they were most vulnerable. We are sorry that instead of caring for them, this country turned its back. And we are sorry that the voices of these children were not always heard, their cries for help not always heeded. And we are sorry that it has taken so long for this important day to come and for the full and unconditional apology that is justly deserved. Uh, That's so long, like literally 20-something years Margaret Humphreys had been trying to get someone to acknowledge what was going on before the official apology came. And in that same statement, Brown announced a six million pound fund, which has kept the Child Migrants Trust working to connect children with their families. Humphreys and the Child Migrants Trust continue to do this work today. She was actually named to the Order of Australia. She was the first British citizen outside of the royal family to be so named. She was later named commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Thanks, Call the Midwife, for making <laughs> us have to talk about this. <laughs> I do love that show, but especially with Christmas episodes, there's always just this, like, some kind of social 
or historical horror that stabs you in your heart part while you're watching. See, I'm safe because I'm I'm phobic about all babies and childbirth things. <laughs> I don't watch Call the Midwife. <laughs> Um, so I'm safe from these cruel, cruel episodes. Uh, do you, do you have a spot of listener mail for us? I do have a spot of listener mail. Uh, and it is about time capsules. It's from John. John says, first off, love the podcast. Now let's talk about time capsules. Time capsules are actually the reason why I started listening to your podcast. Well, an art project that deals with time capsules, about 610 of them. I currently work in the archives at the Andy Warhol Museum as an imaging technician. Starting in 1974 and until 1987, Andy Warhol filled containers, mainly cardboard boxes, with different items from his life. He had a few possible plans for them. One was to turn all the items into an art show someday, and another was to sell each box off as a piece of art. But unfortunately, he unexpectedly died before any of that could happen. They consisted of newspapers, photographs, artwork, letters, invitations, uncashed checks, an inflated birthday cake, a picture of Rob Lowe wrapped only in a stuffed animal snake, probably the best thing ever, Jean-Michel Basquiat's birth certificate, and countless other items, including stuff from when he was a child growing up in Pittsburgh until his death in 1987. These boxes contain more than 300,000 items. The museum has been working to archive and catalog everything that are in these time capsules. There's a great This American Life about the project. My job at work my job is to work at trying to digitize this entire collection of items. It's a pretty cool job, if I must say. But I do spend a lot of time just mindlessly scanning things. So I started to listen to podcasts. It was a few months in before I found yours. But when I did, I was hooked. That's exactly what I was looking for. My favorite episode being The Night Witches. Well, one of my favorites. When I saw the Time Capsule episode, I perked up with delight. I didn't think that you would touch on Andy Warhol, but it was still exciting for me. Thank you for providing me with such joy through history. Uh, and then he finishes up with an episode suggestion. I had no idea that that was even a thing. <laughs> well, I feel stupid because I really love Andy Warhol and, you know, c- curse Valerie Solanas for robbing us of the eventual plan for this one. But I had completely forgotten about it as well. So it was a nice like, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot that. Yeah, so- I um. We've gotten uh, quite a number of letters from people about specific time capsules or specific projects of this nature. Um, and some of them are like, I'm surprised you didn't mention this. There was just, there was way too much stuff for us to mention every time capsule, even just every super interesting, cool one. Uh, there are lots of them. Use. Yeah. So if you would like to write to us about this or any other uh, episode, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at Missed in History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and you can look up all kinds of stuff about the history of foster care and adoption, which, as we have learned through some episodes on this podcast, was not always a great history. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes and an archive of every episode that we have ever done and other cool stuff. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 